following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But what, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying... This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So I am uh, one of many people on staff, Sammy and William and Kelly and other folks, uh, who have different roles and different uh, parts that make uh, this place run and um, help us be who we are. Uh, one of those people is Jared Huffman. He's the uh, lead pastor, and he's not in town, as you can tell. Um, his wife took him away on a secret trip to, uh, to see his best friend, who also is planting a church in Houston. And so... Um, we're glad that he's getting some vacation time. Uh, that being said, my wife is two weeks away from her due date. And so if her water breaks, we'll just have a not live nativity scene uh, right here. We've got the, the foliage and everything um, and gloves, too. Uh, so we're good. Um, we are glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, as we look at the book of Hebrews, uh, as you probably noticed, and you can look on the back of your bulletin, you'll see uh, the verses printed out. But um, this is very choppy, right? This is not just all of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. Um, we are zooming out and looking at the book of Hebrews um, from 40,000 feet. Uh, we're looking at these themes that are ever-present in this book. And so this morning we'll look at a theme, but first I want to tell you of Frederick Douglass, uh, an American icon many of you know the name of, um, a man who was a slave, and, but is really famous for being a social reformer, an abolitionist, a writer, a statesman. I mean, really an, an amazing life. Um, he was born, he doesn't know who his father is, he doesn't know his birth date, 
He doesn't know uh, really where he was born. It was somewhere in Maryland. Um, and yet, for the first 5, 10, 15, 20 years of his life, uh, he was a slave. Uh, he was known for who owned him. He was somebody's. And not in a beneficial, good, positive way. Right? He belonged to someone. He wasn't defined by just what he did, though he was and treated that way, he was defined and treated by the fact that he was owned by someone. Just a horrific time in history, an embarrassing time in history, an awful time in history. And at the age of 20, he hops uh, on a train going north from Maryland on, with a, a sailor's outfit that he had borrowed. And he went north uh, to New York and Philadelphia. And all of a sudden, he had escaped uh, this place that had so long enslaved him, and now he was in New York City, a place that was welcoming and a place where that he was redefined. So for 24 hours, he traveled and eventually found freedom. Uh, right? He was no longer um, belonging to someone else. He was free. And what he did after those 24 hours of traveling is this. He married someone. His, his, the love of his life. He changed his name. He got a new job the year later. This man, for 20 years, was a slave and told he would be nothing. And now he is something. For him, freedom was defined by the fact, not that he was not owned by anyone. Freedom for him was this personification of, I am free to something. Everything I do is defined by the fact that I am free. I'm not, I don't belong to anyone. I'm free. And this morning, we'll see this passage in Hebrews that's amazingly theologically dense. And so, uh, I will miss over things, and I'm sorry. Um, but what I would humbly uh, offer this morning is we have a picture of the freedom that Christ gives because of blood. Right? It's not that we just stop being sinners, because that doesn't really happen. And it's not that uh, our sins are just taken away and done away with. It's more beautiful than that because the freedom that we have in this Christian faith is not just because we aren't captive to sin anymore. The beauty of the freedom in the Christian life is that it tells us and informs us and allows us to do so much more because we're free. And so with that uh, in mind, let me pray. And we'll look at this morning uh, and see how Jesus is a purifier. Lord, I am a son of God, and I'm with uh, daughters of God, mother sons of God, and children of God, Lord. And I am beloved, and we are beloved. I can ask anything, and we can ask anything of our Father, the King. We are heirs, we're adopted, and our brother is Jesus. We are sons and daughters of God, and our souls are set free. And so because of that, Lord, may we experience the freedom that Christ has bought for us this very moment, in this very day, as you, Jesus, are purifier. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, so our first point this morning is Jesus the Purifier. That's the title on your 
uh, bulletin, so I figured we'd knock it out. Uh, we see it in these first verses in chapter 9. Uh, now, remember the context of Hebrews. I know we've been away for a while. Uh, Hebrews is uh, this deep pastoral counsel written to a people who are persecuted. And the author, who is anonymous, is writing to this people uh, who are persecuted and being threatened. And they're being persecuted and threatened because uh, they are Jewish Christians. And the government doesn't know what to do with this new Christian faith because it threatens them. Right? They follow this person who says, I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. And, and they don't know what to do with that. Right? That is threatening to them. And therefore, they will threaten those who follow this King Jesus. And many people, because they're being threatened and persecuted, are falling back into the culturally accepted Judaism. Which is why we see all of these Old Testament Jewish themes come up in the book of Hebrews. Because the author of Hebrews is saying, you're falling back into these things even while Jesus has come and been so much more to you. So he's inviting them to stay the course because Jesus is greater than the things that they're falling back into. So that's where we are. That's the, that's the, the zoom out view of the context. Uh, and this morning, if we look in verses uh, 11 and 12, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, again, these are beautiful Old Testament concepts that are spoken of. Uh, they're deep in meaning and rich. Um, the flip side of that is, to our modern ears, they don't mean really anything. Uh, and that's okay, right? The Bible is something that is beautiful because it speaks to a people in a certain context. Now, what we are tasked with is to interpret it in that context and see how it beautifully applies to us today, because it does. And so, the Old Testament uh, writer, we're talking about this tent. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus has not only entered that tent, he's entered the tent not made with human hands. Not of this creation. Because the tent they're talking about, made with hands, and made of this creation, is the tabernacle. Right? The Old Testament people of God had this tabernacle as they're wandering in the desert. And they would set it up every time they moved and, and made camp. And in it, there was this way of going. And they would go in and make sacrifices day in, day out. And they would go and make sacrifices in the first room, and then the second room, and then the third room. Like deeper into this tabernacle, there was the Holy of Holies. It was where the presence of God was with the Ark of the Covenants. And only one day a year, the, the high priest would go in and offer a sacrifice uh, for the sins of the people because God was there living amongst his people in that place, in this tabernacle, made this tent made with hands, and the people of God would meet him there. The holiness of God was contained in that one room. And God's people would meet him there by the blood of goats and bulls. And the writer of Hebrews is saying all of this blood language, right, this animal blood, Christ's blood, um, ashes of heifer, uh, bulls, goats, all these things, um, because there's something going on. Right? He's talking so much about blood is because the power of blood. Right? There's so much meaning in blood. 
there's a serious, deep connotation in the idea of blood. It's saying that there's something deep going on. That the deep scars of our life and the sin that we feel and the sin that we inflict calls for something. It calls for blood to be taken away. So there's much conversation of blood. And in this passage, Jesus is spoken of as the purifier. He's this purifier that uh, is this blood. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying he's not gone to the tent with his hands. Right, this small Old Testament concept that was good enough for people to fall from Christianity back into Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you don't get it. You're, you're, you're settling for this small tent made with hands while the one you were following went to the greatest tent of all and shed blood his own blood, and he passed this test, and he's purified. He's this purifier. And it goes on in verses 13 and 14, if you look. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of sin, that is to say, if in the old way of working, blood of animals and the ashes of animals work to purify you as a human being, Right? There's that paradigm. They go on to say, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify your, our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In the Bible, this idea of conscience gets at the theme of presentation. Um, it's the self-awareness of presenting your own self to someone else for examination. And it's something that we can't really escape, but this idea of um, conscience. All right, we have to be fit for presentation. And there are ways that we do indeed do this. Uh, there are ways indeed that we construct things for this presentation, right, to make things okay. Uh, we act in certain ways that aren't bad. Um, we act out of things that are maybe uh, culturally acceptable, right? We live in the, the Bible Belt, and yet Chattanooga is the buckle of that Bible Belt in a way. So we live and have, this, have these religious categories that do have meaning, and yet, why do we do them? And yet, we do things like uh, different spiritual practices, yet the intent is so thwarted. Whether we want control from a God who we think we can control, or whether we're doing things out of a fear of this God, or whether we're doing things so that we can accomplish something just to present ourselves, to present ourselves in this tent made with hands. And the author of Hebrews is writing and saying, Beware. Right? Be aware of this. Because our conscience screams out for something that we can't survive the close examination of others. Because if people really knew what we thought, if people really knew how we were, if people really knew what we struggled with, they'd reject us. And therefore, we hide, we dress up, we take over, we run. We have our consciences driven by a motive that is far from pure. Every time I invite people over uh, to my house, I grew up uh, youngest of six kids. 
and my parents both worked. Uh, and um, I love my family, and I love my parents. Uh, but because it was such a large family and so much going on, and because they both worked, the house really wasn't that clean all the time, right? My dad was a lawyer, and, is a lawyer, and he um, he said um, when my mom told him that my twin brother and I were about to come into this world and that she was pregnant, he said, "My life is over. Everything I know is over." Um, and he said part of releasing that control of his life was knowing that the house won't be clean. And so in my mind, I want to fight that. Right? When I, now that I'm a homeowner and have my own place, I want my house to be clean. Therefore, when people come over, you know, there's the five-minute shuffle um, where you realize they're coming. People are on their way. And you go and you fold and you throw your pile of mail in a bag and you throw your clothes in a, in a closet and you um, get your dog who's crazy and throw him outside just to have a little peace. Um, and there's the, the last 30 seconds where you just freak out and you throw things under the couch cushions. And, right, all I have to say is there's something that we can't escape that our conscience is there. The self-presentation that others are going to examine us. It's there. And even the writer of Hebrews, right, this ancient writer knows of it. It's not new to modernity. It's always been there. This idea of presentation, our own conscience. And it's getting at the way that we aren't fit to present ourselves. And we, when we really feel that we're not fit to present ourselves, we feel guilt because of the things that we have failed to do. Or we feel shame because of what that guilt says of us and who we are. We're not just the things that we do. We are a certain way in our persons. And our guilt and shame only point to the fact that we're trying. We're just trying to present ourselves. And right of Hebrews is saying, the survival in this examination calls for a cleansing, calls for a purification. And it comes from the one who has gone not into a tent made with human hands, but in this tent, this throne room, before the living God, sacrifice his own blood. So if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of heifer, if that really purifies the soul, how much more will the blood speak to you and that guilt and shame because it comes from this one who offers his perfect sacrifice? So my question to you this morning is, what does the term how much more mean to you? And where do you need to hear it? Right, the things that plague us and we uh, attempt to control and put together for this self-presentation, this consciousness, for examination, where do you need to hear the words of? How much more? How much more does this person, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offer themselves without blemish, purify our own conscience, our own presentation from dead works, the things that we try to do with our human hands, purify that to the living God. So if he is a purifier, and if he helps this presentation, that's a good presentation, that we, that we are uh, shown to God in this place to be something, what does our purification look like? Right, if he's pure, what about us? 
where do we fit into this equation? Right? We're told we're sons and we're daughters and we're these things, we're heirs of Christ. But what does purification look like for us? Because life doesn't seem that pure. And again, it says in chapter 10, in verses 11 through 14, it says, And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being uh, sanctified. So again, for these Old Testament um, mores and thoughts and concepts, and it's talking about how priests go in every single day and offer a sacrifice, right? Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. They would do it. And they would do it because this stain of sin wouldn't leave. And they knew it. Right? They knew that the sacrifice was, they should do it, but it really didn't change a whole lot. Because they kept going in. They kept going in. They kept going in. Right? And, and Shakespeare's Macbeth, Lady Macbeth and her husband, the king, tried to go and have as much power as they can. Um, it's probably a, a book that you were supposed to read in seventh grade and didn't. Um, but it, they try to have as much power as they can. So I'm going to spoil it. And eventually people die. It's a, it's a, it's a tragedy. Um, but um, Lady Macbeth, later on in the play, one night she's sleepwalking. And she's sleepwalking and she's rubbing her hands as, she, as if she's cleaning them. And she's saying that the stain of blood won't go away because of the things that she's done to, to grab and to assume and have power. Those things have created a stain of blood in her hands. And those things just won't go away. Every day they would go in and make an offering over and over and over again. And the book of Hebrews is written to a people for deep pastoral counsel. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to them, you need deep pastoral counsel that connects these theological truths that you have in this Christian faith to your daily life. And again, we ourselves need these deep theological truths that connect to the pains of this everyday life. We need this bridge to come together and see how it fits. It says, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until the enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All right, it says, Jesus sits down. He sits down because everything that is needed to be done has been accomplished. Nothing else needs to happen. Because nothing else needs to happen, the verdict is in and the things that plague us and it actually says something about that in that verse. It says the things that plague us are becoming a footstool for him. And because there's this footstool of him, there's something that tells and informs our situation. Now, that phrase um, where it says, by a single, sacrifice, by a single offering, he has perfected, uh, we lost it in our English translation, but in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense, which means something happened once, and there's still ongoing effects from it, right? It's happened 
history, but there's still the ongoing eternal effects of it, that it keeps on going, this domino effect, and it won't stop. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, the blood that's been sacrificed won't stop informing your current situation to the degree that the purifier will make you pure. And this points to this idea in the, that's inescapable in the Christian life that's called sanctification. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with it, um, but there's this kind of uh, two components of it that are essential to understand, and I'll explain it. So um, sanctification is being made holy, being set apart, being um, purified. Um, we are being sanctified, purified, set apart because our God is those things. Who we are as humans are uh, having this formative path toward being just like our God, right? God doesn't like the things that we, um, how we are now because he longs for so much more for us. And so sanctification sees and, and plays out in two ways. One is definitive, right? Definitive, a definition. It tells you who you are. You are holy. God says to you, you are holy. It defines who you are. It's your identity. It will never be taken away from you. And the other part is progressive. Right? This lifelong battle with sin is informed by God's holiness, by God's purification. Right? He is the purifier, and he purifies us. He calls us pure, and also he works with us. So it's important to know they're mutually beneficial. They're connected. If it was just definitive, right? If we were just told that we're holy, then the rest of life that has all of these hard things that feels like the fire burning us, we would say to God, wait a second, you told us that we're, we're yours and we're holy. And are you not powerful enough to do something about this? Right? You're loving to call me holy, but are you powerful enough to do something in all of these years that I've felt this pain? And if it's just progressive, right, if it's just uh, God making us holy and making us pure, then we would wonder, do you even love me? Right, you're powerful and you're making me more pure, but what about the things that you say of me? Are you trying to just make me more holy and more pain, through this pain? But the Christian life says, because you are holy, it's framing the fact that you're being made holy. All right, that's, that's all theologically good, but how does it work? How do we see it? It's not just an empty title that we're called holy. It's not just this painful course of life that we're being made holy. It's both. And they speak to each other. But when I was a junior in college, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. I did six months of chemo and a month of radiation. Uh, the year after that, you kind of have this capstone, uh, this magnum opus of, of college uh, in your senior year. It's this um, project that you put together your knowledge, and it looks back on the four years, and it, it kind of puts this flag on the ground of saying, this was good, here's how I have to prove my education. Not just with a big piece of paper that uh, I paid money for with a name on it, but something that um, shows the, lake, the work and the labor I've done. And so, um, for me, I wrote a paper on, uh, it was called The Theology of Cancer, uh, The Rigor of Cancer and the Beauty of Sanctification. The only way that those six months at Erlanger, on the fifth floor of the medical mall, 
and the one month on a table getting zapped at Tennessee Oncology at Memorial Hospital, the only way that that makes sense and is good at all is the fact that God has said at some point, you're mine. It's who you are. And that God says, I'm with you when you feel the, the uh, I can't remember the drugs they put in my body. When you feel that put in your IV, I'm with you. When you lay on that table and get the, that radiation, I'm with you. Right? It's, they're, they're connected and they're together. And I'll just, I'll read it. Um, but those things inform the fact that there has to be goodness in being called holy and being made holy. Being called love and experiencing the love of God. Even when you feel the fire. Chemotherapy can be like the sanctifying work of Christ. Chemotherapy takes the disease-ridden parts of the body that the Lord has intrinsically made and eliminates the cancer with the end goal of the body being free from the disease that hinders it. Similarly, the Lord uses the work of His Son to remove the sin-ridden parts of the body of a called believer in order to make them completely transformed into the image of His likeness, perfectly sanctified. The journey of faith is that of being called beloved because we are. And the journey of faith is that of knowing my pain has a category and meaning in the Christian faith. Something that really no other faiths have. A meaning and category and a purpose for pain. It's not lost on God. Now, I would humbly present this. As we have seen in Hebrews, those things that plague us, like Hodgkin's lymphoma, are being made a footstool to our Savior. And I would humbly present the truth and the idea that He allows, this purifier allows the things that He's already defeated to purify us in our experience. Because if that's not true, then Jesus is only playing with fire. He really is. Right? If he can't really control it and doesn't say much about it, he's just playing with fire. Right? And we can go through the ABCs. We could go through anxiety, betrayal, cancer, depression, and death, enslavement, folly, grief, hubris and hatred, inflammation, jealousy, killjoys, loneliness, malice, neglect, oppression, powerlessness, quivering, relapse, shame, trauma, unethical behavior, violence, weakness, XYZ. Those are the hardest uh, letters to, to find words for. He allows and can use the things that He has already defeated and that are being made a footstool for Him to purify us. Because He's both powerful in how He sanctifies us and loving and how He's called us holy and beloved. And no way at all do I want to attempt to instantaneously put meaning to your experience. But I would invite you into seeing your scars and seeing the heat turned up in your life and seeing how the Lord is working and asking Jesus, how is this connected to you? I know you're with me. 
Jesus, show me how my pain is connected to yours. As you are this final sacrifice. And as these things are being made a footstool to you. The people of Hebrews needed deep pastoral counsel that connected the theological truths to their current situations. The theological truth of purification and the sanctifying work of Christ. How does it connect to the heat and the pain that you feel? The heat that's turned up because gold and faith are both refined and made pure in the same place. That is, the fire. So when you feel the heat turned up, what is that saying for the sanctifying work of your life? So lastly, if he's a purifier and we're purified through sanctification, right? If he's gone with one final sacrifice, how much more, right? Right? And we're, 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 we're purified through sanctification. Why is it good? In verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 15 through 18, it talks of this Old Testament language. It says the Holy Spirit talked and spoke of this long ago. And it's Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah 31 is on this rush floor of Old Testament promises that a new covenant would come. Right, God made covenants with his people because he's saying, I am going to be with you. I'm binding myself to you. And this covenant says, I will make a, a new covenant with you where I'll put my law in your heart and, and I'll, I'll make you pure and I'll remember your lawlessness no more. And Jeremiah 31 is a covenant between God and man. And God says those words well knowing that he himself would have to enact all parts of the covenant in order to make it happen, and he does. He's saying, I'm dealing with a sinful people, and it screams for blood. There has to be blood, not of goats or bulls. But I know that my love for my people is so great that I'm going to shed the blood of my son. Because both he and I and the Spirit long to know them and long for them to know me. Long for them to know the holiness that I am so that they can be made holy and be made pure. The very last line of this passage says, Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There is no longer any offering for sin. The beauty of the Christian life is that the definition of the working definition of freedom is not that your sins are taken away and it's static. It is this entry door into a new freedom of knowing that the blood is shed, my conscience is clean, my presentation is enough, and therefore I can be informed on who I am. Right? Frederick Douglass just wasn't owned by someone else. That's not what defined his freedom, the lack thereof of being owned, the cessation of being owned by someone else. He knew what freedom was to him. It was good because it defined everything he did afterwards. A new name, a new family, a new job. How does freedom that, that Christ has bought you with a single sacrifice define everything you do? Where do you need to know that even in the fire, when you've been called holy, when you're being made holy, 
Jesus says to you is no sacrifice that needs to be done and made because my blood is so great for you that it speaks to this holiness. It speaks to your situation. That there's no longer any offering for sin. 